Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. There needs to be a coherence to the work that the FCA does. There needs to be a strategic narrative that explains to the public, to consumers, what it's there to do, and really importantly, what it's not there to do. Today's guest outlines how he believes the Financial Conduct Authority's ever-expanding remit could impact its drive to become a data-led regulator. He reveals some common mistakes financial services firms make when interacting with the watchdog. He explains why he thinks the UK's asset management regulatory framework could benefit from a fundamental rethink as lawmakers reshape the UK's rulebook post-Brexit. And he warns city bosses that they risk serious fallout if they do not act now to adequately manage their operational risk. These are all subjects close to his heart because Nick Miller was the FCA's Head of Asset Management Supervision for five years until early 2022. Since then, he has led Moody's Global Regulatory Affairs team as its Managing Director. Hi Nick, welcome to Following the Rules. Good morning, hi. So you left the Financial Conduct Authority in February after spending almost eight years at the regulator. Five of those were spent supervising asset managers Given that experience, what advice would you have for those working at asset managers now in terms of how they can best interact with their regulators? If you look at the FCA's objectives, they're very clearly designed to promote open, fair markets and to provide an appropriate degree of retail investor protection. And that means that the regulator wants to see firms that are doing the right thing by their customers, but also that are thriving, that are making profits sustainably and delivering good products for their customer base. So I would approach regulators recognising those objectives, but in a business-like way, seek to have constructive, open dialogues with your supervisors in particular. That's really important to to establish a climate of trust and recognise that regulators have a job to do. It's really important that the regulators are there to provide confidence in market integrity, for example. So they have an important role to do, recognise them, work collaboratively with them in an open and constructive way. Are there any common mistakes that you notice being made? One thing is not overburdening the regulator with excessive amounts of information. There is a tendency to seek to engage too much with regulators. You need to have an ongoing dialogue with regulators, but I think just having conversations with your supervisors for the sake of telling them about the latest personnel change or whatever it might be is potentially very interesting to you as a firm, but not necessarily something that would generate regulatory interest. So ensure that you're engaging with them constructively, which also means 
uh, that you're providing them with information in a timely way that but that's going to be helpful to them and relevant to them don't just fire hose them with information about things that are happening you need to use exercise some judgment in terms of what you're bringing to the regulators attention you need to recognize that there are literally thousands of firms across the uk and there are only four thousand or so people at the fca so there's a limit to how much information they can really realistically engage with and perhaps the regulator can be clearer sometimes about what it expects because it's not viable for it to oversee or or analyze every single piece of uh, management information that you might get from your firm i think in that regard actually the accountability regime senior managers regime is is really helpful because that does put the onus on senior management of firms which is absolutely where it should be to oversee run control their business effectively and of, of course most importantly I think where there is a problem that is material, it is important to raise that early with the regulator. Don't try to massage the narrative, as it were. It's important that you're open and honest and, and constructive with the regulator. The regulator doesn't expect a zero failure regime. Things happen, things go wrong. The question is always, have you resolved the issue at hand? What does that tell you about your systems and controls? Are there other problems that may be uh, correlated with this one? And on a going forward basis, are you confident, and if so, how, that your systems and controls are now fit for purpose and that there is a control around picking up any similar issue that may occur in the future? And that's what the regulator is trying to achieve, is to ensure that, of course, issues that have arisen are resolved. But frankly, how are these problems going to be prevented from occurring in the future? I was certainly surprised to learn of your departure from the FCA. You were a very well-respected presence within the asset management sector. Did you leave the regulator with any unfinished business? Look, regulation evolves as markets evolve. There are lots of uh, trends and developments which are focusing people's attention on their investments. They are now much more responsible for their own longevity risk than perhaps they were previously as as public sector institutions withdraw from that space and increasingly uh, define benefit pension schemes are the default but at the same time and particularly among younger people the demand for sustainable investments people really caring about where their capital is being allocated should be really really exciting for this industry and present them with a lot of opportunities but of course at the same time you need to ensure that there's a level playing field and that investors understand what it is they're putting their money into so Regulation will always evolve and the regulator will need to try to stay ahead of that curve. So there is always going to be unfinished business. I really enjoyed my time at the FCA. You have a really influential, really important role and the ability to engage at the most senior levels across a really critical sector. So it was a real privilege to be at the regulator for that time. And I really enjoyed the changes we've made over those five years, which mainly down to my team and and all the achievements they've made in that time. I did leave with a twinge of sadness, but equally there is a time limit for everybody, including a regulator. Any regrets? Anything that you would have done differently if you had your time again? If you look at some of the challenges the FCA is facing in terms of becoming more and more proactive, perhaps a bit more assertive in certain instances, I can certainly see the advantages of that kind of approach. What I think the regulator is constantly trying to achieve is to ensure that they're focused on substantive material issues that generate the risk of harm for consumers or for market integrity. Um, And that does mean you have to prioritise really effectively. It does mean you need to have good data to 
understand the sources of those harm. It does mean that you need to have good people who understand the markets, who understand how firms operate, who understand the kind of risk that business models present. So I think there's always more you could do to really focus in on on those genuinely problematic issues and as in many organizations spend less time on internal administration and so on i'm sure that's a frustration a lot of people share across the industry but everybody certainly that i worked with at the fca was really keen to make a meaningful difference and i hope the organization continues to grow and evolve and and it becomes more efficient at doing so over time what regulatory reforms would you like to see in the asset management sector if you had the power to implement them or perhaps you'd stayed at the fca i think with With the asset management sector, the business model is actually really simple. It's a principal-agent relationship. Give me some money and I will seek to grow it for you and invest it for you in the way that I've outlined in my investment strategy. So in a sense, what you're constantly trying to do is to ensure that principal-agent relationship is not abused and that firms are doing the right thing by their customers and acting in the best interests of their investors. And for me, a lot of that just comes down to clarity, actually. It comes down to what is it that you're offering? In what capacity are you operating? And what does your product seek to achieve over what time period? And it can be quite hard to achieve that for the industry, partly because there's a significant information asymmetry between investment professionals who operate across the buy side and the average retail investor. So it's important that that asymmetry is not used to exploit customers but actually that firms are leaning against that asymmetry by being just as clear as they possibly can about what the product is seeking to achieve. I think as investor interest in where they're allocating their capital grows, that actually presents more and more opportunity for the industry to grow and evolve on a sound footing. The challenges we faced over the years that I was in the sector was was largely down to a lack of demand side participation, really, a lack of switching, a lack of engagement, partly because they didn't really understand uh, often what what the capital was being allocated to, what their investments were doing. So I think the more that you get people engaged, the more that you get people asking questions, the more the sector will will grow and that firms will need to respond to that. So more work to be done there. But I think actually, as I say, really a positive outlook for the sector if it's taken forwards in the right way. One area in which there is huge interest in clarity over investments, clarity over actions and behaviour is in the environmental, social and governments sector. We're speaking not long after Deutsche Bank's DWS has faced pretty stark criticism and regulatory clampdown amid accusations of being seen to be greenwashing, misrepresenting their ESG investments. Would you say that that has focused attentions within the asset management sector as to the need to avoid being seen to be greenwashing and to take the ESG drive seriously? Generally, when we talk about greenwashing, what we are concerned about is a lack of clarity around what are the environmental, social and or governance outcomes that the product is seeking to achieve, how will you know when you've achieved them, how are you monitoring over what time frame and so on and so forth. And it's really important that firms are clear about that if they're making claims to be ESG thematic investment or whatever it is firms need to be able to make those claims clearly and be able to stand behind them. So it's an ongoing challenge. I think what is frustrating from a regulator's perspective is where insufficient thought, insufficient diligence, insufficient board oversight is available to those kinds of issues. And for example, that products that have been out in the market for decades potentially 
are tweaked insubstantially, the index is altered or something, there's no material change to the investment strategy of the fund, for example, and that then the fund suddenly is relabeled ESG compliant or, or whatever it might be overnight. That's where regulators generally, I think, particularly concerned. So it's an age-old issue in financial services. What is it you're trying to achieve and how clear can you be about it? But I do recognise there are real challenges in, in practice, partly because of the lack of international standards, there's some confusion over terminology, taxonomies and so on. Good work being done so far to resolve some of those issues, I think, internationally, but obviously it's, it's still early. So if you had to name perhaps three areas that you would like to see standardisation at a global level for the asset management sector, what would those three areas be? So the, the first thing is around the sustainability standards, just to be clear about what terminology means. So this is the taxonomy debate. Now, you can look at ESG in a number of ways, and there will always be a degree of public policy considerations around the outcomes you're trying to achieve and how best to achieve them. So do you favour nuclear? as part of your green transition or do you avoid nuclear because of the risks it presents? Those are public policy challenges that are just questions that need to be resolved. I don't think those are the kinds of issues where regulators are best placed to provide answers. But I do think what you can see is the need just to understand what terms mean in practice. So what is the right taxonomy? And the more you can achieve that on a global basis, the less scope for arbitrage and confusion across jurisdictions there is and the better outcomes there will be for consumers so getting sustainability standards right globally to the extent possible and you will never be able to achieve it fully even if that were desirable but getting that right is a key priority i do think in the asset management space one of the priorities we pushed at the fca which is important is achieving good value products for customers now it's obviously not something that can simply be observed through looking at a data sheet of, of prices, for example. It's a challenging concept. And that's why we wanted boards and management of firms to really pay attention to whether their, their costs were appropriate for the type of product they were offering and thinking about very carefully whether, for example, the management fee was appropriate and looking at all of those considerations. So that's not something that regulators, I think, can just make a rule about and it becomes effective. I think that's an area where we do need to see firms stepping up and, and taking some leadership over. And then I think there's still, it seems to me, is a lack of consensus globally about the kinds of risks that the buy side can present from, if you like, a systemic perspective. So the banking sector and the insurance sector, we do have a degree of commonality, I think, globally around the types of risks that those types of firms can present where there's significant leverage, for example, in the case of the banking sector. It's less clear-cut in the case of the asset management sector. There is less consensus, for example, between securities regulators and, and macroprudential or systemic regulators. And that debate, it seems to me, has not necessarily advanced particularly. I do think we need to move that forwards because it does seem to be rather stuck. Okay. And in discussion on the regulatory priorities that you would like to see enacted on, those are fairly meaty topics that you've referenced. They're not easy jobs. Uh, It's not easy for the FCA to implement standards that achieve those goals and enforce those. Does the FCA have too much to do? It's it's a really interesting question, Lucia. Certainly since I've been at the FCA, which is bar its first year, pretty much all of its history so far, its remit has grown significantly. Claims management companies, crypto, funeral plans, lots and lots of areas that have been added to it. And I think logically, at some point, there has to come a point where it just becomes 
uh, a very very broad remit and the, the sustainability of that is it therefore becomes in question I'm not saying it's at that point just yet but I do think it's reasonable to say that there must be that point and it is trying to do a huge amount of really challenging tasks all the way from very small consumer credit firms to very significant global investment banks and everything in between and that does present challenges. I do think though there is significant scope for the regulator to become more proactive and and more efficient. If you look at what it is they're trying to achieve which is really to identify and target and resolve sources of harm you could see a world in which data becomes a really valuable tool to identify and and to seek out sources of harm ideally before they become significantly material and and actually costing people money in in real life that is a big challenge because like all many organizations the fca is dealing with huge amounts of data vastly more than say 10 15 years ago a lot of which frankly is the product of regulations that are requiring firms to report to the regulator so part of the challenge is making sure that regulator is getting the right data and it's not overburdened with unnecessary superfluous data fields that are not going to be helpful or useful but also ensuring that the capital investment is there to build out the right systems. Now, it can be done, actually, because the MIFID transaction reporting database that the FCA has is incredibly impressive. I can't remember the numbers, but it's something like 13 million reports per day that they're receiving. I've seen that in operation myself, and it is being used for their surveillance purposes against market abuse, for example. So it, it can be done, and it can be done effectively but it does require a lot of resources, both in terms of capital and in terms of and people. And Nicol Rathi, the FCA CEO, did set out an intention to transform the regulator into a data-led regulator when he first joined the watchdog. That's a very noble goal to have, but what challenges does the FCA's broad remit pose in relation to that goal? I think there are a number of challenges. I think what is probably not necessarily obvious to people when they criticise the regulator is that the FCA has been composed of a number of legacy organisations and that predate even the Financial Services Authority. And so the types of data they're receiving are often related to former self-regulatory organizations or other smaller regulators that no longer exist and it's very hard when you've got a set of legacy issues like that to actually build out something that's brand new um, and that is you know really optimal and efficient from the perspective of 2022 so there's legacy challenges that are going to be problems for the regulator and that is not a, a specific problem for the regulator lots of firms are facing those kinds of issues as well i do think that there is a lot for the fca to oversee and for its executive committee to exercise judgment over but what matters there is having really good people who understand the sectors understand the business models understand the firms and that can really focus in on on the sources of harm that are most important it's not going to be feasible ever i think or desirable from a value for money or public policy perspective for the regulator to solve every problem or as i say try to enforce a zero failure regime and i know nikhil's explicitly said that's not what they're seeking to do And it is also important, I think, for people 
sometimes even the media to recognize the limits of the role of the regulator. So in financial services, if you're looking to generate, you have to take on risk. And that means sometimes people will lose money because the risk doesn't pay off in certain circumstances. That's just the fundamental nature of financial markets. The regulator isn't there to solve that problem, frankly. I think the regulator needs to be really clear about that. But people need to recognize that. And that is just the facts of economic life. You've mentioned a number of times that you believe the FCA's remit is broad, arguably too broad. We're in a scenario post-Brexit where the UK government is rethinking the UK rulebook mm. and the remit of the UK regulators in a once-in-a-generation project as we unpick the UK from the EU rulebook. How do you think the FCA should change as the, as the UK government rethinks the financial regulation space for the post-Brexit era? Yeah, it's a really interesting set of challenges and probably warrants a podcast on its own (laughs) merits, I guess. Could, should the FCA push back a bit on what it's been asked to take on? Or is there a scenario in which some of that workload could be taken on by another body? There needs to be a coherence to the work that the FCA does. There needs to be a strategic narrative that explains to the public, to consumers, what it's there to do. And really importantly, what it's not there to do. So it will always cooperate with other bodies. Competition issues will be dealt with alongside the CMA, for example, where there's issues of fraud, City of London Police, other criminal authorities, the Serious Fraud Office. So there there will always be handoffs and collaboration with other public sector authorities. And of course, that's entirely appropriate. But I think it's not always clear and it's probably not always optimal where those remits lie, where they overlap. Does that make sense? Where they potentially where they underlap, where there's just a gap that needs to be filled. Not obvious that the FCA should always be the body that steps in to fill that gap. So I do think it's a question of just being really clear about remit and purpose, and then the kind of structural issues should really flow from that. I would say it's an interesting question about, and I think this is something that was looked at many years ago when the FCA and the PRA were being set up, was would you ideally have a a financial markets authority and potentially a consumer authority as well, consumer protection body? That's how it happens in in other jurisdictions to some extent. I think there are obviously challenges and pros and cons to doing that, but it's certainly not a subject that I think should ever be off the table. Okay. What are your views on the UK government's efforts to rethink UK rules post-Brexit generally? Are they missing anything? And if so, what? I think there's a few things to be conscious of. It is the case that the European Parliament had a much more intensively technical role than one might expect the UK Parliament to have in terms of what they call a trilogue approach, for example, where the Parliament, the Council and the European Commission would really just sit in a, you know, in a closed room and negotiate away on very specific terms and amendments within the draft regulations. One wouldn't expect the UK Parliament to be doing that, for example although obviously it's a decision for them how they approach these kinds of challenges. So in that circumstance, how do you ensure that the rules that are being made are done so with proper democratic accountability, that they're overseen appropriately, and that there is some technical challenge to the regulator? I think in those circumstances, you need to think very carefully about ensuring that consultations are done properly. I think the FCA has a good track record, actually, in that regard, that sufficient time is given to allow comments that the regulator proactively seeks out views of industry consumers experts to ensure that the framework is appropriate and that that everything sits together appropriately. I think in terms of the role of 
government versus regulator, legislation versus rulemaking, that is a particular challenge. I don't think it's any secret to say that what we used to call the levels one, two and three process didn't really fit with the UK regulatory approach. So clearly there will need to be some changes. I do think there is a lot of scope for making it more efficient as well. We're seeing some changes already being proposed by the government in the wholesale markets review, some of the perhaps more onerous, less valuable provisions, you might argue, being removed or or revised, and I think that's helpful. What I would say, though, Lucy, is, and I I think this is an underappreciated issue, is that generally speaking what the European legislation does is to provide an overlay a harmonizing grid if you like or framework to existing laws regulations that apply at the national level and they were generally speaking I know in in more recent years the, the EU has generally preferred regulations, so directly applicable rules. But often financial regulation is based on pre-existing legislation and there there will be amendments made to it as directives like MIFID and so on uh, come into place. But that means that you're actually dealing with a legacy of historical rules that applied in the UK decades ago uh, and that perhaps haven't been revised effectively for the UK markets whether or not European regulation has since come into that space. So I think there is scope for, if you really wanted to have a very strategic review of, for example, an area that was close to my heart is asset management, you wouldn't just look at the USITs and AFMD equivalents in the UK now. You'd, you'd want to have a look more fundamentally at the whole regulatory framework for collective investment schemes broadly so the the different types of investment vehicles that are available do they all make sense are they all subject to the same levels of regulation are they clear to consumers what they're buying and that would be an incredibly ambitious project i think but if you wanted to make really fundamental change that is probably what you'd want to do just quickly for the benefits of those that may not be familiar with USITs and AFMD, how would you summarise what those two rules seek to achieve? USITs is about, uh, broadly speaking, retail investment funds, so traditional mutual funds that are available to be distributed to the public. And AIFMD is anything that isn't within USITs, actually. So any type of investment vehicle that is in some way you might deem alternative. So a hedge fund, private equity, commodities fund, whatever it might be. But interestingly, actually, when it comes to the UK implementation of of those rules, actually some types of alternative investment funds are available direct to the public, others aren't. Not obvious to me that there's always a very clear rationale for those distinctions. If you wanted to really do a strategic, fundamental review of asset management policy broadly defined in the UK, those are the kinds of issues I think you should be looking at. So in order to enable the post-Brexit review of financial regulation in the UK to be as effective as possible, the, the policymakers should be taking a step back from the rules that exist to really look in the round as to whether or not those rules are effective in the first place. I think you've got an overly narrow view, potentially, if you only focus on the rules that have emanated from the EU, because that only has ever made up actually a part of the picture of financial regulation in the, in the UK One obvious example, actually, is the senior manager's regime itself, which was a UK-devised, UK-implemented regime. There is no real equivalent at a European level. I'm not arguing about whether or not that's a good thing or or not, but I'm simply saying if what you're trying to do is to ensure that the financial regulatory framework broadly defined is really fit for purpose, really optimal for the UK 
in 2022, it would be a mistake solely to look at the EU-derived pieces of that because they will only ever make up part of the picture. Mm -hmm. It's an enormous task. I don't think it should be seen as something that will ever be completed, if you like. it's a, Markets evolve, products evolve, the sector evolves, and regulation needs to, to keep pace with that. There are some strategic challenges around some of the pieces of regulation. So, for example, it's not obvious that the way in which EU legislation was devised makes perfect sense, a lot of which, frankly, was done at pace for perfectly good reasons following the financial crisis over a decade ago. There's work to be done there, certainly, and that that does present challenges for compliance for firms. But it shouldn't just be a question of what are the pieces of EU legislation that we don't like that we can hive off. It is a question of what is strategically the best regulatory framework for the UK here and now in 2022, and that's that's a much bigger question, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, and, and it's a valid point that that work should never end because obviously you can continually and perhaps should continually review the rulebook and, and ensure that it remains relevant. When you left the FCA, you joined Moody's um, as the managing director in the Global Regulatory Affairs Division. Could you tell me more about your current role and, and what's on your to-do list? Yes, certainly. So let me tell you about Moody's because I'm really enjoying being here. And you'll be familiar with with Moody's as a credit rating agency. And and that part of the corporation of Moody's is is called Moody's Investors Service. Um, And that is a long established rating agency. And that's been subject to regulation pretty much globally now since 2010 or so. But there is a much bigger part of the Moody story as well, which is the rest of Moody. So we are a globally integrated risk assessment firm, and we have lots and lots of businesses that are not part of Moody's investor service, they're not part of the rating agency. The recent acquisition of a firm called RMS that does some very sophisticated climate predictions, really interesting business, lots of businesses that focus on KYC, so know your client anti-money laundering type issues, and there's a range of um, initiatives around ESG as well. So a very, very dynamic company operating on a global basis, which is at the forefront of really a number of big strategic challenges that are face, that's facing the global economy right now. Obviously, it's quite easy being sat in the UK to focus very much on the UK reform agenda because the UK's efforts to unpick the regulation from the EU rulebook is such a vast body of work. But obviously, there is also a vast body of work going on in the EU in terms of the EU regulatory reform agenda. What are you watching most closely or most concerned about in terms of that? So it's funny, Lucy, since I came out of the regulator, you realise just how much regulatory change there is and how much is being generated. It's really hard, I think, now just to keep pace with the sheer volume of change that's happening. And and a lot of that is coming out of the EU. One of the interesting consequences of the very significant programme of reg reform that the EU introduced following the financial crisis is that actually there's an exponential effect to it because each piece of regulation derives new pieces of regulation, derives revisions, MIFID 2, MIFID 3 and so on. So it it is a much bigger landscape than it, it used to be. The EU has sought to advance the ESG debate in particular and has sought to be a a first mover in that space. And that has presented some challenges because we do want to see, as certainly as Moody's, we want to see globally consistent regulation to the extent possible. So 
I'm very heartened when I hear EU senior officials say that they will, for example, be following and closely and actively engaged with the work of IOSCO and the ISSB, for example. So I completely appreciate why the EU is, is, is moving as fast as it is, but it's one region of the world. And, and to be effective in a number of these areas, you know, I just come back to the point that global consistency is really key. Mm-hmm. Lastly, is there an upcoming or current challenge that not enough people are paying attention to right now? I always worry about operational risk. I always worried that not enough firms paid enough attention to it when I was at the regulator. It's not very sexy. It's not easily resolved. It's incredibly challenging to get on top of. You've got to know all of your business processes. You've got to be able to map them end to end. You've got to understand which parts are outsourced, which parts are outsourced within your group, which jurisdictions are critical, processes are based in, so on and so forth. There needs to be really clear accountability among your business leadership. So it is a challenging area, and it's an area that that firms need to spend more and more time focused on because when it goes wrong, and it may not go wrong very often, but when it does go wrong, it goes wrong very quickly and can be very expensive. So it is definitely worth that investment. I think that would be, that's always top of my mind. Do you think the pandemic and Russia's invasion of Ukraine has focused attention to need to focus on that? Yeah, and I think many of the recent events we've seen globally should be shaking us out of any residual complacency that we've had around the risks that are present in the world, whether they're geopolitical, whether they're to do with cyber risks, whether they're to do with economic risks. We've seen, I think, in the last few years, a very clear increase in the types of risks that we thought perhaps were at the margins, we're within the tail of the distribution, we're unlikely high impact but improbable events. We've had EU withdrawal from the UK perspective, we've had uh, a global pandemic, we've now got a war in Eastern Europe. I mean, it's quite an extraordinary development over the years and I think we need to reapprise our concept of risk and how much credence we put on certain types of risk, geopolitical, for example, that perhaps we were less concerned about only a few years ago. We should never just assume that things will be okay just because they've always been okay in the past. We need to be constantly challenging, stress testing, reviewing the assumptions that we've made around what our businesses do and where they're based and all the processes that underpin them, which are often very complex and quite hard to work through. And in that context, I think the asset management sector does have some challenges, of course, that nobody should be in any denial about that. But I also think that the role that the asset management sector has to play is really critical. And therefore, it is important that there is more consensus between securities and and prudential regulators around the types of risks that firms and funds can present in that sector, how material they are relative to all the other risks that we're, we're facing and what an appropriate proportionate set of mitigants might look like. So, yeah, I, I certainly hope that people are learning from recent history. Well, the topics that we covered today, as you say, could fill a number of podcast episodes. So thank you for covering them so concisely. And thank you very much for your time today, Nick. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.